Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study today. I ask that your spirit will join us. We, we long to know you better and understand uh, more fully your kingdom and how we can cooperate with you here. We ask that your spirit will be poured upon us, our class members here, those that are part of our class but can't be here today, and those who participate through the Internet around the world. We ask that you will pour your spirit out on us in 2014, that we can make uh, more inroads and reach more people with the healing message about your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, announcement, uh, we, uh, this is primarily for the online audience. Uh, we have been transitioning uh, our, our webcasting platform from one uh, internet provider or service uh, company to another. And there's been a couple of glitches over the last couple of weeks, particularly um, uh, we are in the Eastern time zone and the company we're using now that, uh, that is the platform for this is in the mountain time zone. And when Dean set up last week for us to have the uh, live chat for those who follow us online, he said our time, but the internet provider is actually in a mountain time. So actually it didn't, it didn't open itself up until two hours later. And so uh, some of the individual, nobody was able to actually log on and interact last week. That's been fixed this week. But uh, evidently some individuals uh, misunderstood that and thought we were blocking people from, from logging on. And, and, uh, and uh, we, we were not blocking anyone from logging on. It was a, uh, it was a transition glitch. And hopefully we, we won't have any more of those. Alrighty, if we look at our memory text, uh, oh, this week we're doing lesson number three in the quarterly discipleship, and the title is Discipleship in Prayer. And the memory text is from John seventeen twenty and 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. How do we become one? What does it mean to be one? Maybe we should ask this question, turn it around for a minute. What prevents unity or oneness? Mm -hmm. What what causes division and undermines our ability to be at one? Selfishness. Selfishness clearly does. Yeah. Our condition is the belief in a lie. Lies. Lies believed. Uh, An unwillingness to listen. I kind of link that with pride. I already know. I'm the source of all truth. I've got the truth. We've got the truth. There's, a, there's an organizational pride. I mean, the Jews had it. We've got the Sabbath. We don't, you know, we, we've, got the, 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 we've got the doctrines right. So we don't need any more light. So lie, selfishness, pride. How about fear? Does fear cause division? And, and connected with fear is doubt. Distrust. Which is also part of fear, I think. Survival of the fittest. Yeah, survival of the fittest, that drive to protect self. Yeah, watching out for number one. So we divide to conquer. Well, what, what is necessary to establish then? If we understand these are some of the things that divide, what's necessary to establish unity to be at one? True character of God, understanding his character. So, so truth about God primarily, but truth, truth about God, understanding his character, which is a character of? Love. Love, so truth, love. Trust. trust, which is established on Faith. E- evidence or, or truth. Yeah. And what about the atmosphere in which all this is presented? Would a free atmosphere be important for coming into unity? Is it, Can you have unity at gunpoint? <laughs> seriously. No, seriously. There are, there are governments that have tried unity at gunpoint, right? Gunblo- gunboat diplomacy, so to speak. Can you really, you can get conformity. But can you get unity? Doesn't genuine unity really require freedom? Yeah. So truth, love, and freedom. What does it mean when Jesus, what does it mean that Jesus prayed to his Father? If he was fully God, why was he praying? He was communicating. Yeah, yeah, but if he's God, why is he praying? This is a question that often comes up. Husband and wife talk to each other. <laughs> Wasn't his uh-huh. See, see, Wendell's getting at something very important for us to recognize. Jesus was praying, recorded in the scripture, at what point in his, you know, as a human being, is the point we're making. He was a human being praying. He veiled or, or denied himself access to his divine prerogative. So he wasn't praying as God. He was praying as a man. Now, this is very important to recognize because in Scripture, 
we have Jesus' experience as a man and God, and he are interacting in many ways through, through his humanity, not through his divinity. Examples of this, it says in James that divinity cannot, or God cannot be tempted by evil. But Christ was tempted. That was not his divinity being tempted, that was his humanity being tempted. So when we find him praying, when he says to his disciples, no one knows the day or the hour, oh, not even the angels, not even the Son of Man, only the Father. What was he telling us? That he was functioning as a human and not accessing divine prerogatives. I don't think he, he did not say, notice what he did not, he did not say, I will never know the day or the hour. When I ascend after my resurrection, when I go back to heaven, when I pick up the, my, my, my abilities that I, I laid down and so forth, I, I won't know then. He didn't say that. He said, no one knows now. Here, when you're asking me to tell you when it's going to happen, I don't know. Why? What's, it, what's that tell us? It tells us that he limited himself to those abilities of a human. But how? I don't understand. I don't understand how he could have been human and divine. I never have understood that. And that's one of the mysteries. That's why it's a mystery, because it's beyond our actual capacity to understand that. We're finite. He's infinite. We can't truly understand infinity. The same with his death also. We can't understand how God can die when Scripture clearly states that God cannot die. But I don't think God did die. Oh, I don't either. Humanity died at the cross. The humanity of Christ took upon himself, but his divinity did not die at the cross. And that's the, the mystery of that, of that merging that we can't fully comprehend. And I don't know that even in the eternity hereafter we will ever fully comprehend. Because he's infinite. And how big is the gap between infinity and, and a finite mind? It's an infinite gap. We may grow in our understanding, maybe in deeper perspectives and insights, but I don't think we will ever fully, completely so no. we take it on faith that he did not partake of any of this divinity, that it was all humanity. Well, we have evidence. It's not, just, it's not just blind faith. We have evidences. I've given you a couple evidences when he said he didn't know the day or the hour. There's an evidence he's not accessing all knowledge at that point. When he said himself, I don't do anything of my own self. Everything I do is through the Father. He was telling you that all those act, miracles and things he did were done through the same way the apostles or Elisha and Elijah did miracles, through his trust relationship with God. But then, say for instance, whenever he knew that Judas was going to betray him, he knew it ahead of time. Was that not accessing divinity when he... Did Daniel know what nations were going to come ahead of time? Did Daniel access his personal divine... to him. Ah, and so how did Christ know these things? So you think that, that... There's no question in my mind that he had revelation given to him by his father. That he wasn't. And this is part of the temptations in the wilderness. If you look at the wilderness temptations, they were all about getting him to access his divine pride. How many of you have been tempted to take rocks and turn them to bread? Really, seriously. It is not a temptation to us in the least because we can't do it. But it was a temptation to him. He had the ability to do it. But if he did it, then suddenly he accessed power for personal gain, which he doesn't do. Yes. But I think in answer to her question, ultimately, yes, we take it on faith. We take the body of evidence and say what's consistent, what does it push us towards. But ultimately, the bottom line is, yes, we take it on faith. But it's not a blind faith. An unreasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. We put it all together. But we're not God. And only God can have access to everything. Nothing that he does is on faith. Everything that he does is on absolute perfect knowledge. Sure. Everything that we do, ultimately at the bottom of it, is faith. But he gives us plenty of evidence. Upon which our faith rests and stands. Yes. Yes. The relationship he had with God allowed him to have the abilities to do what he did because he trusted in God and God gave him the power. And so we are told that if we have faith, we can move mountains. So that power... If we had the same relationship Jesus had with God, is kind of available to us in essence, isn't it? That's exactly right, yes. I mean, that's what you see. Did you not see the apostles? Right. Yeah, they even prayed over claws, as I understand it, and sent those, those pieces of cloth back to people and people the were healed. The point is that our humanity has to die and he has to live in us. So eventually we would have the character of Christ. Exactly. So the, there's another point here too, though, and that is in Scripture when it talks about God granting Jesus' abilities, gifting him, elevating him, establishing him, giving him a throne, all these types of things. This is talking about Christ's humanity 
It's not talking about giving Christ divinity. Christ was divine. He possessed his own divinity. And many people get confused when they read some of these because they don't demarcate the difference between when, when the Godhead is interacting with Christ and his human side and his human abilities and his human achievements and Christ in his divine state. And thus, sometimes there's some division made amongst the Godhead and some, some conclude that Christ wasn't exactly fully equal to God, which, which I dispute. I think if we undermine the divinity of Christ, we undermine the plan of salvation and the truth about the Godhead. So um, we're talking about unity coming into oneness, and there was a quote that we didn't get to last week um, that I wanted to bring in because it talks about this oneness, and this is out of a magazine called Signs of the Times. It was written in 1902, July 23, 1902. It says, God is omnipotent, omniscient, immutable. He always pursues a straightforward course. Did you hear that? Always a straightforward course. How much of your theology as you study it seems straightforward? It should. God is the source of truth. He's not duplicitous. He doesn't take crooked courses. He doesn't try to confuse and make things. When he said said to the apostles, I have much to tell you, but you can't bear it, he wasn't trying to cover things up. He was saying, your minds aren't ready to handle it. His law is truth. No, his law is truth. Immutable, eternal truth. His precepts are consistent with his attributes. Think that, think that. His precepts, what's another word for precepts? Law. Law is consistent with his attributes. This is what what this means. When he constructed his universe, he built it on protocols or laws that are in harmony with his own nature. His precepts are consistent with his attributes. He is love. So he constructed his universe to operate in harmony with himself. That's how it was built. But Satan makes them appear in a false light. By perverting them, he seeks to give human beings an unfavorable impression of the lawgiver. Notice, here's the process here. Attack God's law to alter how we see the lawgiver. And how has this been primarily done? How has the law been attacked? Well, that's the way to salvation, for one thing. It's a list of rules that arbitrarily were given. That okay. We can be saved. So let's, 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 exactly what you're saying, let's make this more... More, let's demarcate that a little more clearly. How? It imposed rather than a natural part of his character. Yes. And so we have this, this idea that God's law is not the, the design protocols, the, 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 the principles by which life was constructed by the designer, the creator, the builder. Instead, it's like a, an imposed set of rules by an imperial dictator like something Rome. Something he thought up separate from himself. Yeah, something he thought up even separate from himself. A list of rules that require external enforcement rather than protocols which have inherent consequence. This is how the law was attacked. How it, and it was attacked. It was prophesied in Daniel chapter seven twenty five that that this little horn power would seek to change God's law. Can't change the protocols of life, but they can change the way we conceive of law. So we see that that God runs His universe. We conceive of God as a as a heavenly Roman emperor, and He rules from heaven like the emperor ruled from Rome, and He has His 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 angel armies going around to keep proper records of all the bad behaviors you do, breaking the rules so that he can give you proper inflicted punishments. Well, you have to keep the law perfectly in order not to be condemned if you believe the law is going to save you. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading the the thing. Throughout his rebellion, this is Satan, throughout his rebellion, he has sought to represent God as unjust, as an unjust, tyrannical being. Tyrannical. What do tyrants do? What do tyrants do? How do they behave? In a, in a, in a dictatorship, in a dictatorship, dictators are generally tyrants, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and what determines what's right and wrong in a, in a tyrannical dictatorship? <laughs> yes. They're, they're, see, they set the law. They are the source of the law. They make up the They change it at whim. They, they do what they They just say it and they make it happen. This is how Satan is representing God. And so there's these conceptions out there that what makes something right or wrong is what God says. If he says it, then it's right or wrong. Rather than what he says is right because it's actually right, he would never speak anything other than what's right. You see the difference? In the beginning, it was Satan's purpose to separate man from God. 
how does he separate us from God? What, what is the tool that he uses? Remember the, remember the metaphor we've used before of a, of a loving married couple? And, and somebody tells you a lie that your partner's having an affair? Even though they're not, if you believe the lie, if you believe your partner's cheating when they're not, what happens in you? Does something inside you change? So lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Satan is the father of lies. When we believe the lies about God, we don't trust him. We're separated from him in heart, in motive, in attitude. We now run from him because we think he's out to get us. We need someone to protect us from him rather than, than, than run to him to be reconciled to him. And this purpose he carried out in every age. Constantly he is at work among the children of men. He sways all classes. The same method of deception, the, the same logic that he used to deceive the Holy Parent Eden, he has used in all succeeding generations. His plan of work has ever been one of deception. Remember, lies believe. At times he assumed, now get this, the words right after he his, his plan of work has ever been one of deception. That's his method. Next words. At times, he assumes a cloak of piety, purity, and holiness. Often, he transforms himself into an angel of light. But what method will he use? The deception. See, which is more deceptive? A satanic coven worshiping the goat's head and pentagrams and, and, and offering you know, chicken sacrifices to the devil or some being representing, claiming to be a representative of Christ. Which is going to dupe more? See, which is going to get you a, a bottle in your cupboard that has a skull and crossbones and says poison or a bottle that purports to actually be an herbal supplement to give you longer life, but it comes from China and it's got lead toxicity in it. Okay. Which is going to you know, get more people? The one purporting to be, but actually containing toxins, you see? So, purporting, so, so where would we then find that? If, if Satan transformed himself to angel of light under the cloak of piety, purity, and holiness, where would those agents be found today? In the church. In the church. Do we have history that supports this as a, has happened? Yeah, at the highest levels. The first high priest was... In the, in the Old Testament system, the first high priest? Aaron. And what did he do? Who, who made the golden calf for them? Aaron. Aaron actually used his own hands to make the golden calf. And then we have the history, the sad history of Eli's sons and Samuel's sons and, and, then, the, and then the priests leading into Baal worship and then Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, who actually misrepresented Christ and the priesthood in the dark ages in the church and, and burning people. Do we find that this... this are, are we now in, uh, invulnerable to this process today, or is every church still vulnerable to this? Every organization. So the point here is, and, and let's be fair, Nicodemus was in the same, Joseph of Arimathea, there was leadership individuals who actually's heart was right with the Lord. There was Samuel, great leader for the Lord. So God has had his people in leadership as well. So just because someone's in leadership doesn't mean they're on the devil's side. The point being is, you can't trust someone just because they're in leadership. That's the point. You have to think for yourself. You don't surrender to me or to anyone else your judgment. You must weigh these things out for yourself. Come to know the truth. Be so settled intellectually and spiritually, and nothing can shake you from it, including if a being comes as an angel of light, performing miracles, calling fire down from heaven, speaking in melodious voices, apparently raising the dead, performing miracles, that if they advocate principles contrary to God's character, you won't be taken in. Let's keep going. He has blinded the eyes of men, so that they cannot see beneath the surface and discern his real purposes. What do you think blinds the eyes of men? This is not physical blindness. This is a metaphor saying our minds become confused. We can't discern the truth. Could it be complex theologies? And tradition. Traditions, and, and, and I, think, I think that's, that's the biggest. As a result... As a result of Adam's disobedience, every human being is a transgressor of the law sold under sin... What does that mean? Transgressed, sold under sin. Psalm 51, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Because of what Adam did, and Adam was given a gift, he was created in God's image, he was given an ability to reproduce and make beings in his own image, and when he and Eve changed their image from the image of God to survival of fittest driven, self-centered, fear-ridden individuals, they had beings in their image. Beings born primarily with the drive to survive. Me first, fear-ridden. Thus, we have to be reborn. 
And thus Christ came to achieve in humanity what none of us could do. Restore God's true methods, principles, law, if you will, into the species human where it no longer resided. So we read, unless he repents and is converted, he is under bondage to the law, serving Satan, falling into the deceptions of the enemy, and bearing witness against the precepts of Jehovah. But by perfect obedience to the requirements of the law, man is justified. Who obeyed perfectly? I only heard a couple of murmurs. This should be absolutely clear. It should be unequivocal. Who obeyed perfectly? Jesus. Jesus. That's exactly right. Jesus, as a human being, obeyed perfectly. Get your mind around what I'm saying here. Thus, humanity, the species human, was set right with God in the person of Jesus Christ. We have a human being, Jesus, who lived the law perfectly, who restored, by the exercise of his human brain, God's methods and principles perfectly. This was not divinity that won the victory in our behalf. It was Christ's humanity that won the victory in our behalf. Thus, the species human. You know, as long as we have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. Because of Jesus and his perfect victory, there will always be a sinless human being, Jesus Christ. The human race, the species created in Eden by God, was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. The only question that remains is how many other specimens will join him. He's offered what he's achieved to you freely to heal you. You don't have to achieve what he achieved. You only have to receive what he achieved. And it's free. Only through faith in Christ, only through faith in Christ is such obedience possible. Men may comprehend the spirituality of the law. They may realize its power as a detector of sin, but they are helpless to withstand Satan's power and deceptions unless they accept the atonement provided for them, the remit. Let me, let me read this again. Unless they accept the atonement provided for them in the remedial sacrifice of Christ, who is our atonement, and it's written in here, as I'm about to read it, our at-one-ment with God, with the hyphens in the original. Notice, what was the at-one-ment or atonement provided for in the context here? Remedial. remedial, not a legal payment. It was a remedy, remedial. It was a re- remedy. It, 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 it uh, remediated what was wrong in man that sin caused. Thus, when we trust God, we experience renewal of heart so that we are at one in heart, in motive, and become partakers as we open and trust We become partakers of the divine nature. He writes the law on our hearts and minds. We are reborn. We're regenerated. The heart is circumcised by the Spirit. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is, but it's regenerational, partaking, taking what Christ has achieved and reproducing it in us. Yes, Linda. And that's what made me uh, really appreciative of the approach you've taken here, is realizing that Jesus' sacrifice, his substitution was a perfect life that we could not give. And... It wasn't a God's requirement that he be killed to satisfy God. It was a, uh, his life and death were needed to substitute for what I could not do for me. To bring man back into unity with God. To actually change the species human, which was deviant from God's design, back into perfection of God's design. Yes. How is it then that... Um certain leaders in the church, uh, this this is in harmony with what we teach. This is one of the founders of our church. How how is it that that we become a pariah for for teaching the same thing? Because if you look at the history, from heaven, Eden, Old Testament, Christ, New Testament, Dark Ages, till today, there's been a war going on. And it's centered on the knowledge of God, his methods, and character. 
always, and in every organization. 2,000 years ago, the Jews were clearly God's chosen people, chosen for a purpose, and their purpose was to evangelize the world and prepare the world for the advent of the Messiah. That was their mission, prepare for the advent. Prepare the hearts and minds. Prepare, you know, uh, John the Baptist ended up doing what the nation was supposed to do to prepare a way for the advent. Yet their system, and they were blessed with the prophets, the prophetic writings, they were blessed with the sanctuary message, the health message, they tithe, they believed in the creator God. Uh, they had all of these blessings, but their idea of God and his character and methods were so distorted that when Jesus himself came to present this message about God's kingdom, they hated him and they killed him. You will find there is a divide. There is a war of ideas. I mean, say that again. A war of ideas, a war of methodology, a war of beliefs over a God who is the builder, creator, who operates on love, truth, and freedom, and a dictator God of power and coercion. And sadly, every church, Christianity, is infected. Jesus used the parables. The wheat and the tares grow up together until the harvest. What does that mean? In the church, there are God's people, and there are the tares in the church as well. And we leave them until the harvest, because if you start uprooting the tares, you uproot the good wheat with it. So in the church, we will have this problem. So each one of you have the responsibility not to go out and start pulling weeds, other than in your own heart, but to actually be part of the, the wheat to bring about a good fruit. Yes, Kathy. I think what, when Russell said, why, what appeals to us, why do we become that? Because once Adam and Eve changed our nature, power and coercion appeal to the nature that we have. I'm, yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm going to jump just to give a quote from w- something we'll never get to, but um, <laughs> because it's all the way in the end of the lesson. But this is out of a book called First Testimonies, page 624. In answer to this, this is just one little sentence. As error is moat. As error is most in accordance with the natural heart, it is taken for granted to be clear. As error is in accordance, excuse me, as error is most in accordance with the natural heart, it is taken for granted to be clear. Where's that from? First Testimony, page 624. And we won't get, it's in the notes, but I have so much else to get to that I think you'll appreciate. I want to kind of move forward here. Sunday's lesson. It says in the first paragraph, prayer, frequently prayers assume, pr- prayer assumes a self-centered posture. Believers present their wish list before God, hoping to get that w- which they ask for. Though, of course, we are told to set our petitions before God. Sometimes our motives are not pure. After, after all, are not our hearts corrupt, wicked, and deceitful? Might not our prayers at times simply reflect the sin- sinfulness that lies within? Intercessory prayer, however, focuses on another person's needs, thus removing the likelihood of selfish motives. The lesson suggests one way to have our prayers become less self-centered is to engage in intercessory prayer. What do you understand intercessory prayer to be? Who needs intercessory prayer and why? Okay, does God need someone to pray to him to encourage, listen carefully to what I'm saying, I all know how you phrase the question, to encourage him, persuade him, convince him, or some way induce him to do some good he would not want of his own accord to do. No. No. Then if God wants to do good anyway, what is the purpose of intercessory prayer? I heard a lot of... Uh, it's for our... It's for our <clears throat> Clear our consciences to, to, to know that we have a relationship with God and that He is listening. Is that would that be correct? Well, to take away from our selfishness, We're praying for ourselves all the time, to think of the needs of others. So in John 17, when Jesus was praying for us and His apostles and all those that come after, He was interceding for humanity at that point in His prayer as a human, praying as a human. He was praying to take away a selfishness. She made a face. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> no, the, 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 this is good comments. These are comments we need to explore. We need to process them together. We need to eva- evaluate the evidence. What is the purpose? Who needs the intercessory prayer? What's being accomplished? Yes, in the back. Two things. One, if part of the lie is that God imposes himself on others, the prayer is the invitation to invite him in so that it can't be said he's bullying his way in. But he's been invited in, and also the clearing of... Uh, 
I, I like where you're going with this. I really do. I would phrase it slightly. <laughs> I'm sorry. For those online who didn't hear that, uh, I said I like where you're going. Somebody over here said, lucky you. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, caught me off guard. That was funny. <laughs> okay. Yes. Opening the heart to God is afraid as well, but that inviting him in. See, intercessory prayer isn't praying for your own heart. You see. So I like where you're going, but we need to slightly reshape that. Yes. I think of it as an opening of your heart to align to allow you to be aligned with God's will for that person. I, I like where you're going with that too. But let, let me let me go on. Say, Will God violate, where you were going, I think, will God violate free will of, 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 of intelligent beings? No. And we say it says to stand at the door and knock, as you were implying. So if a person says to God, leave me alone, get out of my life, I'm going my own way, I don't, I'm going to do my own thing, will God force his way into their heart? No. But if another person says to God, God, I know my child is choosing to turn away from you, but they don't really understand. I know you give them freedom to make this choice, but... For me, will you continue to seek opportunities to reach them? Will you stay engaged with them? Will you still bring people of influence to them? Does this give God, within the bounds of his respect for freedom and the way he operates, avenues of engagement that he might not otherwise have? And, and look, Is there evidence for this, or am I just making this up? Well, let's look at some evidence. Daniel chapter 10, we'll read 12... Verses 12 to 14, and then 21 and 22. 20 and 21. Then he, an angel, continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of Persia, uh, or the prince of the Persian kingdom, resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns the time yet to come. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Now what's going on here? Daniel prays, 21 days later, Gabriel comes, said, hey, I was on my way, but I got detained by the prince of Persia while I was dealing with the king of Persia. And I'm here for a brief time, but I've got to get back because I not only got to fight against the prince of Persia, I got to fight against the prince of Greece, which is coming to help the prince of Persia. And no one helps me. No one helps me except Michael, your prince. Daniel... Chapter 10, 10 of 12 through 14 and 21 and 22. So what's going on here? Well, let's first identify the players, if we can. It says in John chapter 12, 31 and 32, this is Jesus speaking. Now is time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But if I am lifted up, I will draw all into me. When Jesus refers to the prince of this world, who is he referring to? Okay. So if we, and there's other, I I didn't put them all in here, but there's other passages in the New Testament that that describe Satan in the same way as prince of this world. Is the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece superior or inferior to the prince of the whole world? Inferior. Inferior. And if the prince of the whole world is Satan, then who do you think the princes of Persia and Greece are that are opposing and able to effectively fight with an angel from heaven? Satan's subordinate angels that have districts or, or areas of this world for which they are responsible for creating evil and havoc. This is what I think is going on. These are fallen angels under, uh, who have authority in Satan's order in this part of the world. So some type of battle is going on. When we pray, there's an angelic beings behind the scenes waging war. But what kind of war would this be in Scripture? If we use Scripture, what kind of war is this? Is this a war of power and might? Yeah, it says uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not carnal. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Jesus Christ. So this is a battle waging in the minds of intelligent beings over the knowledge of God, over what we're going to do. So, in this, with this in mind, 
Why were no other angels able to help Gabriel other than Michael? And by the way, who's Michael? Jesus. So let's be very clear. I want to, don't want any confusion on this. There is a, a church organization out there that teaches Michael is Jesus and a created being, an angel being, not a divine being. We reject that idea. We believe that Christ, prior to his incarnation, pre-existent, fully God, fully divine, has his own inherent life, original, unborrowed, underived, but the in- infinite God, can't, uh, in- in- finite beings can't enter into infinity, but God loves and wants unity with his beings, wants to be close in relationship. So one member that God had left infinity and came out to interact with his creation, and that member has been Christ, and so he manifested himself in the form of an angel, but he was not an angel. He just presented himself in that way so he could get close to his creatures, and his creatures could really get close to him. And you have evidence for this in Exodus chapter 3 and many other places where God talked to Moses at the bush, and it says it very clearly in Exodus 3, and then it also says the angel of the Lord talked to Moses from the bush. So um, this is Christ, is the member of the Godhead, uh, manifesting in the form of an angel. This is Michael. So uh, let's be clear on that. So why is it then only Michael is supporting Gabriel? What happened to those 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands, these millions, these two-thirds of the other angels in heaven? Why aren't they coming to help? I have a theory. We'll check it out when we get there because I, 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 this is just a theory. Um, it may not be right, but here's my theory. What kind of war is this? It's a mental war. Over what? Over, over ideas and concepts and truth. Um, uh, Satan's weapons are, are deceit, lies, misrepresentations, gods are truth. Lucifer, prior to his fall, held what position in heaven? Light bearer, covering cherub, highest, as far as we know, closest to God in, in, of any created being, his power to deceive then. What do you think when he rebels? Do you think his power to deceive is probably pretty powerful? Yes, yes. So what, uh, the weapons necessary to destroy Lucifer's deceptions would be truth. Gabriel, as far as we know, took Lucifer's place in heaven. Now the highest created being in heaven meaning he's the most intimate with God, meaning he has the most knowledge of a created being of God's character, methods, principles, meaning he is most effective of the created beings to present truths, to dissuade and and overcome the lies. There's no other created being above Gabriel anymore in their knowledge and intimacies with God. So who's the only one who can help Gabriel? The only one who can bring more than Gabriel can bring to bear in this war of truth and ideas is, is, is God himself. Michael comes to help. Isn't that cool? Isn't that exciting? I get just chills when I think about this. It's not that, the, that there aren't other angels willing to help. But this is a, 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 a war over your knowledge and intimacy with God himself. The, yes, and so Michael comes to share. And ultimately, Michael came that we might know him personally. Emmanuel, God with us. It just gives me chills to think about it. This is my theory. So, of course, there is some evidence for this. John 1 says that Jesus is the light that lightens all men. But the light shone in darkness, and the darkness did not understand it. Uh, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Daniel is praying for the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would be in, in captivity 70 years. Daniel's praying, 70 years, it's time. Lord, it's time. Get, let us, let's, let's fulfill the prophecy. Set us free. He's praying for this, to release the Jews, return to the promised land. This requires, however, a human who is governing that part of the land to, to, to authorize it. A human being, this government had to authorize this setting of free. Do you think Satan is for this? No, so the prince of Persia is influencing Darius's mind to say no. And think about, you think that couldn't happen? Think about earlier in the book of Daniel where we had this already demonstrated to us. Why were the three worthies put in the fiery furnace? Because some of Satan's human agents plotted a trick to trick Nebuchadnezzar into having the, remember? In order to influence his mind with pride and arrogance, so the, and why did Daniel end up in the lion's den? Because other of Satan's human agents tricked Darius into the same thing, only praying to this one, and Daniel's three times a day praying. It was a trick. I mean, was Satan influencing the mind of these rulers? Yes, to try and shut down. And so what we have is when Daniel begins to pray, 
Satan's agencies are there trying to, to, to harden Darius's heart, and Gabriel is going to influence Daniel with, tr- with uh, to influence Darius with truth and good motives and God's principles of freedom and, and love for God's people and all these other motives to give give uh, Darius an inspiration for a higher, nobler purpose. And so the prince of Greece is coming to add his weight to the opposition, and Michael comes to give even greater weight to the good. And Darius makes a decision. So I, I see intercessory prayer. Daniel's praying in intercessory prayer, and God is responding to his request to influence the king for good. And it wasn't, by the way, notice this decision. This decision he was praying for was not a decision for Darius' salvation. We don't know whether Darius is saved or not. I don't know. But it was for another purpose. Do we pray for our leaders in this country? Do you intercede for the, for the politicians and people in power? Do you pray that God will influence them for right decisions? I don't know what, what, whether Darius is saved or not. But there's evidence that his decision on this was influenced by Michael and Gabriel. For the good. This is um, a perspective from one of the founders of our church. It's in Amazing Grace 322. Christ desires his followers to reveal in their lives this same character. In his intercessory prayer for his disciples, he declared the glory, and in the text, bracketed right behind the word glory, is character. This character, the character which thou gave me, I have given them. Think that through. The character that the Father gave Christ, he has given us. That they may be one. How is it that we are one then? By coming into harmony of his methods, character, principles, and motives. That they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Today it is still his purpose to sanctify and cleanse his church, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. No greater gift than the character that he revealed can Christ ask his Father to bestow upon those who believe on him. No greater gift than what? His character can he ask to be bestowed upon us. For what is Christ's intercessory prayers seeking in our behalf? Our healing, our transformation, our renewal, our regeneration, our recreation, our likeness to him. That's what he's seeking. I've got some other examples in in the notes, but I'm going to go on to Monday's lesson of people who did intercessory prayer in the Old Testament, but they're in the notes. Monday's lesson, first paragraph. Think through what prayer really is. Fallen sinful beings worthy of death are able instantly to have direct communication with the creator of the universe, our holy God. When you read this, what does this paragraph say to you? Fallen sinful beings worthy of death are able to instantly have direct communication with the creator of the universe, our holy God. How do you hear it? What do you think it means, sinful beings worthy of death? So which of the following analogies, and we have two analogies, which do you think is more closely representative? It's an analogy, so it's, you know, it's got its weakness, but which do you think is most closely representative of the truth of, of the being, the person being worthy of death and communicating with the Father? A child has disobeyed their parent, who happens to be the judge and executioner in their local jurisdiction, and the child is currently being held on death row awaiting their sentence of death, but they have a radio where they can talk to their father who is going to ultimately come and kill them. Or a child has disobeyed their parent and went caving where the parent told them not to go. And while in the cave it began to rain very hard and water has risen in a stream in the cave trapping the child. And as the water continues to rise, it's only a short time until the child will be drowned. But the child has a radio that can talk with their parent. Why is the child in the first scenario worthy of death? because of some rule that has to be enforced by an external authority to kill them. Why is the child in the second worthy of death? The consequence of their action. Their situation is not compatible with life. Once your head is underwater, 
you can no longer breathe. You're out of harmony with the design. And you will die. Now, if the, if the child believed that the father was required by law and justice to execute them, would that increase their desire to talk with him? But if they were desperate enough, fearful enough, the, the, the hour of execution was approaching, might they still reach out and talk to their father? And what do you think those conversations would look like? Please, Daddy, please, please have mercy. Don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Please, please, please. And don't you remember our older brother already died for me? Take his blood. Don't kill me. If the child believed their situation was what condemned them, like being trapped in a cave, and though it resulted from their own disobedience, they knew their father was crying and had an absolute desire to rescue them and trade places with them if he could. Do you think they would reach out and talk to him? And what would those conversations look like? I'm so sorry, Daddy. I'm so sorry. You were right. I blew it. And if Daddy did trade places with them, and they knew they were going to be safe now, but Daddy's going to die. I'm so sorry, Daddy. How could I have done this to you? Does it make a difference in our conversations with God on how we conceive of these things? It's all handsome work. Yes? Dr. Tim, uh, my first experience with intercessory prayer was my prayer of salvation with my pastor on my knees. And several other times I've gone for help and someone has actually physically held my hand and we went to our knees and we prayed. Those stay with me. And those were powerful. And those are things that we in this room could do when someone is troubled. It's much more powerful than just giving them a condolence. Well said. Well said. I think sometimes in our own confusion, our own misunderstanding, when we haven't known God as well as, as maybe someone else, that we've needed those types of intercessions as well, to have someone who did know him introduce us back and say, hey, you know what? God is really not like that. You don't need to be afraid of him. He wants to heal you. He wants to deliver you. And then maybe have that prayer with someone. If we hold to a God who is the source of death, a God who is required to punish, a God who needs some other being to stand between us in order to absorb his wrath, and we do still pray to this God, will our prayers be affected by this conception of God? How do our prayers get impacted when we are afraid and believe God is the source of inflicted punishment and death? Well, number one, we're probably afraid. Uh, Do we pray to the Father or to Jesus more often in that concept? And who did Jesus pray to, however? He prayed to his Father. Do uh, penal theologies and these punitive views of God uh, undermine our willingness to pray to God? And thus, we not only pray to Jesus more, there are entire large, large worldwide groups that not only have Jesus, but they also add in Mary and the saints to pray because they need lots of people influencing God in their behalf. Do we pray for ourselves more often, for forgiveness, for pardon, for avoidance of punishment? Do we make deals with God? I promise I will never do this again. Please, please, God, just don't punish me. Just take my sins away. Please, please, uh, uh, do we, do we, I, 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 I'll never, uh, uh, do we even sometimes threaten, God, if you don't do what I want, I, I'll never speak to you again. God, if you let me do this, then I'll do that for you. Do we claim Bible promises as a way to hold God to it? God, you promise that if I do this, then you've got to do that. Think about the implication of if we pray that way. We really don't believe he's for us other than it's a promise somewhere we can hold him to it. Do we pray the blood of Jesus to the Father, seeking to influence the Father with the blood of his Son? Father, I don't come to you on my own. I come to you with the mighty blood of Jesus who's paid my sins and given me the right to come boldly before you. Now look at your son's blood and be good to me. Consider how the 450 prophets of Baal prayed. They prayed and they prayed. But for what? And with what mindset? Did they come with hearts that trusted or with offerings to influence? When we pray, do we go with hearts that trust him because we've seen in him, seen the truth of who he is in Jesus? Or do we go with the blood of Jesus to influence him? Are we offering him the blood of his son to influence him? It's Baal worship. 
Yes. In Galatians 5.19 is a list of egregious sins, those which live that way or practice those things without inherit the kingdom of God. Christ is perfect. So the difference between practicing and a stumble seems to be a continuum between damnation and salvation. How does one know exactly where one is? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, let, let me finish this other side of the prayer, and we'll come back to that, because it may answer it here. Do our prayers change when we come to realize that God is just like Jesus? That he is for us, on our side, giving everything he has for our salvation and redemption, a God who never needed convincing to do what is best for us, a being who set out to save us even before we knew we needed to be saved. If we view God this way, does it affect our prayers? Instead of being afraid, we move toward him with thankfulness. Instead of focusing on self, we meditate on him. We move away from insecurity and uncertainty to love and admiration. We bring our concerns to the Father, confident that he's for us, wants to know our hearts, wants to know what we're struggling with, always listens, always understands, always forgives, always intervenes for what is for our best eternal good, including, if necessary, loving discipline, but he'd much prefer never to have to do that. We come to know he longs for us to be with him infinitely more than we long for him to be with us. I'll say that again. He longs for us to be with him infinitely more than we long for him to be with us. As we begin to appreciate his true self, we begin to grieve at how little we have loved him. How little we have spent time with him. How little of ourselves we have actually returned to him. How little of our hearts are truly dedicated to him. And we tell him of our sorrows. Father, I'm so sorry. And we in our mind's eye see him smile and love and reach out like the prodigal and take us and give us a big hug. Does our conception of God make a difference? and how we pray, and how we talk to him. Yes, it does. So this question, this question has to do with heart attitude. This was Paul in Daniel chapter, uh, excuse me, in Romans chapter 7. The good that I want to do, I don't find myself doing, but that which I, 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 want, uh, that which I don't want to do, I find myself doing. See, when your heart is changed, you long to be perfect. You long to never let God down. Just like a, a spouse that loves their, their spouse, never wants to disappoint their spouse, never wants to let them down, never wants to hurt them. But because we are human, we're frail, we're weak, we stumble and fall. But when we do and our heart is right with the Lord, we're not cast off and we're not in rebellion against him. Because as soon as we realize we've stumbled and fall, made a mistake, our heart grieves. Oh man, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, we're already sorrowful in a marriage relationship before the marriage partner even knows we, we blew it. And the same, we can't say that with God because he knows everything already, but... But before we even realize, okay, the point being, as soon as we realize we suffer, we're already sad. We're already sorrowful. I didn't mean to let you down. Lord, I'm so weak. Oh, the, and what do we find? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we have habits sometimes, conditioned responses, uh, old ways of living that, that predate our heart change, where our heart wants to live victoriously, that sometimes in certain situations, conditioned responses, sleep deprivation, old habits will sometimes creak in, and we may find ourselves responding in a certain way. We never really want our... And as soon as we do, we're, we're on our knees. We are not lost in that situation. This is not saved and lost, saved and lost, saved and lost. You're saved in that entire process. Because your heart never turns against the Lord. You're grieved in your heart. You say, Lord, oh, what a wicked man. Who has saved me from this body of death? Finish the work you've begun in me. And your heart stays engaged. The only thing that causes you to be cast off is if you close your heart and stop the journey. Think about it metaphorically this way. You've got bilateral pneumonia and you're in a terminal condition and the doctor puts you on an antibiotic that works for you. As soon as you start the antibiotic, it begins doing things in you you can't do for yourself. Yes? Yeah. And you have left the path of death and are on the path of life. But the antibiotic begins to work on you. What happens next? It starts breaking loose the infection and more crud comes up. More. You start actually coughing more crud out after you're on the healing plan than before. Does that mean you're getting worse? 
What happens when we leave the path of sin and enter the path of righteousness? The Holy Spirit begins to work in us, and we become aware of more and more defects of our character. More and more faults start coming out that were always there, but they were buried under various practices, habits, and social uh, conformities. But they start coming up now, and we start coughing up more crud doesn't mean we're getting worse. It's part of the cleansing process, bringing it up so that we can go to God, fall on our knees, and say, Lord, I need to be delivered from this too. You're not lost in that circumstance. That's part of the saving process. One of the tricks of the devil is to focus on external behavior and get you to believe that with every good deed or bad deed, you're either saved or lost. It's not true. It's a journey. We focus on sins and not sin. Yes. So in the fourth paragraph, it says the following, Prayer is an opening of the heart to God as to a friend. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive him. Prayer does not bring God down to us, it brings us up to him. I think that's beautifully stated, and it reminds me of John fifteen fifteen, where Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Notice what a servant does not know does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. Can you talk to someone as a friend if you live in fear that they're out to kill you? Think at the devil's agenda, presenting God as the cosmic dictator who is going to kill you if you don't do what he says. It undermines your ability to be his friend. What is the essence of friendship? Love, trust, and understanding. Love, trust, and understanding. This is the essence of friendship. Friends are for each other. Friends know each other, understand each other, care for each other, want what is the best for each other, love each other, and trust each other. In our case, we are imperfect, so human friends may fall short, may make mistakes, but such mistakes are not purposeful betrayals. A friend who lets a friend down is grieved, but before the friend knows about it, even before the friend knows about it, we let God down, If we're his friend, we may grieve. We have let him down. But that doesn't mean we betray him and turn against him. We're sad in our hearts. We go to him, Lord, I'm so sorry. I blew it. I'm so weak. I never want to let you down. But sometimes the good I want to do, I don't do. I'm so sorry. Jesus responds by saying, I know your heart is willing, but your flesh is weak. I know you are for me. You just need more time with me practicing choosing the right. Don't worry, our friendship hasn't changed. The only thing that will change our friendship is if you close your heart to me and stop coming to me when you make mistakes. That's the only thing. And this is the devil's trick. When you make a mistake, your conscience, just like Adam, when he sinned, he ran and hid because he was afraid. He was afraid inside. Fear is part of the the, the consequence of sin. And, And who was he afraid? He was afraid of God. But was God against him? In fact, God came for him, not to punish, but to redeem him, to save him. The only being really in in the universe that could help him, he was running from. Because he had a distortion about God in his heart, and his own conscience was convicting him. And this is what sin does to us. When When we stumble and fall, it creates us in us a panic, a fear, a shame, a guilt, an inadequacy that no one could love us, no one could like us, we're too we're too awful, we can't be accepted anymore, and so we run and hide. And it's that hiding, that refusal to come back to God and say, I'm, I am so awful, I blew it. And God says, that's all right, I'm going to heal you. Under the penal model, we only conceive of a judge wanting to punish. But think about it under the designer, builder, creator, heavenly physician model. When a patient comes to a doctor, even when they've been non-compliant and they started smoking again and their COPD has gotten worse and they come back to the doctor and said, I blew it, I started smoking again. I can't hardly breathe. Can you help me? I'll do everything I can. The doctor's not going to cast them off. The doctor's going to help them. If you come to Christ with a sincere heart to be helped, he will not cast you off. He will help you. Peter, I think, is a wonderful example of this, you know, where Jesus sort of warned him ahead of time, you're going to deny me, but when you're converted, you know, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And, get, and he, he denies him three times. And then Jesus calls for him to confirm three times that he loves him and tells him what he wants him to do with that love. So the the change there was in Peter's heart. Peter had to have a change where he lost confidence in his own self and began to trust Christ. But if we are not friends, if we are instead servants, then we fear 
what the master will do to us when we make mistakes. Instead of being sad, we are afraid of the punishment. So we seek to get our mistakes covered by the blood of his son or our punishment placed on Christ and be sure that the father punishes Jesus in our place for our mistakes or get the record books erased from any records of mistakes or get us to be covered in the right robe of righteousness so the father can't see or know anything about our mistakes anymore because we're terrified of him when we're a servant. God has invited us into friendship so that we can understand the master's business. Do you have a vision in your life of what God is trying to accomplish? Do your prayers go beyond our safety, our earthly needs, which are good and proper to talk to God about, but do we go beyond this and also talk to him about his desires and longings? Do we pray for greater opportunity to fulfill his purpose? Do we ask God for enabling to represent him for resources, skills, abilities to take the message forward to enlighten the world? Do we ever talk to God and let him know that we are sorry for the pain and suffering he endures every day? as he looks upon this sin-sick world? Do you empathize with him and tell him that you would love to shield him from the agony he must endure, if you could? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we can't imagine how hard it must be for you to be aware of all the sickness, the perversity, the exploitation, the abuse, that goes on in this world every day. How your heart must grieve to see your children being hurt in such a severe way. We're so sorry you have to put up with this. We're so thankful that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to accomplish and do for us what we could never do. And we ask that you'll send your spirit now to take all that Jesus has achieved and and reproduce it in us, that we might become partakers of your nature, to have your character reproduced, to write the law on the tablets of our hearts, that our motives will be to love you and love others more than self, that fear will be extinguished and love will be the overriding motive to our hearts. Empower us in 2014. Open up new avenues, Lord, that we can take this message that is to lighten the world to the world, that hearts can be freed, people can know you, and that you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.